Hello friends, my name is Jumont McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. So today my guest is the Chief Executive Officer of the Dyslexia Foundation, Steve O'Brien. The Dyslexia Foundation was started by Steve in 1999. At the time, no dyslexic person was the head of a charity in the UK. Steve was told he wouldn't last. He couldn't. How could he? Today, he is the longest serving Chief Executive Officer of any charity in the UK. A testament to his tenacity and desire to show people that having dyslexia is not an obstacle for fulfilling your potential. As always, this podcast is to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. Steve's commitment to providing the the level of support which is needed for adults with dyslexia, those who who may or may not have been uh, missed when they were younger because they might come from a low-income household is evident. It's infectious. It it is what drives his work. And he also encourages people to really take ownership of their dyslexia. When they have a diagnosis, when they find out they're dyslexic, it's it's actually a, a source of great strength because once you put a name to it, it can really, really help you. We get into so much in this episode and I really think it's a special one. So sit back and enjoy. All right, well, hello, Steve. Hi, Jude. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm doing okay, considering <laughs> the situation we're in, where we are, what we're doing, but all, all's good. Yes, all things considered. Um, all right, well, I mean, obviously, I know you quite well. Um, I've known you for a couple of years now, but I'm going to pretend for the... Um, for the podcast that uh, that I'm completely ignorant of, of of how how things go at the Dyslexia Foundation, um, so we can get a sense of of what it's all about. So, the Dyslexia Foundation that's is is your baby. Um, you created the the charity. Um, why why did you create the charity? Um, going back to sort of 19, ooh, 1994, uh, I left school with uh, two um, D grades of O level the prior to the GCSEs. Um, didn't really do very well at school. As a young uh, primary school child was diagnosed uh, with dyslexia or in the 1970s it was called uh, word blindness by uh, the Catholic nun at my local primary school. And basically it was, they were saying that, I am, you know, I've got word blindness, uh, something needs to be done. So I was t- taken off, assessed and ended up in a what was advertised as a uh, dyslexic school in Southport, um, which uh, was a private school, um, which my parents could ill afford. But because they were told the son was, you know, special, needed uh, lots of help and couldn't see words, couldn't spell, uh, and was poorly behaved, um, I ended up in a private school. Uh, This private school, I was there for three years, and they taught me uh, Latin, French and how to write with an italic uh, pen. And uh, my dad had a real bone of contention when I was at primary school because I'd only ever write with a pencil. By the time I left the uh, 
the, the expensive private school, literally, they didn't do anything for the dyslexia. They just taught me Latin, which made my spelling worse. Um, and they literally sort of gave me two or three years of French and not a lot else. There was no multi-century teaching. There was no looking at phonics. There was nothing looking at short-term memory. It was just all about basically small classes. Um, and that was about, sums up my sort of what they call remediation intervention of uh, going to a dyslexia school. Um, so literally ended back up into mainstream education, was put back into uh, the local um, secondary school with my brothers and uh, nothing was ever mentioned of dyslexia again. Left school uh, with two uh, D grades and everything else was literally, you know, unclassified or I'd forget to turn up to one exam just purely because I got the wrong day and the wrong time. And school really didn't happen for me. Um, and then I moved forward and went to uh, work for my dad, who was a builder. And it was my English teacher turned around to my dad and said, well, you know, don't worry, your son will come and work for you. There's uh, no need to worry about education. Uh, and that was pretty much summed up the 1980s idea of, of dyslexia. It was the sort of the kid that's written off um, unless the parents put some sort of intervention in place. Um, I lasted two years working for my dad and then ended up traveling, uh, working for an adventure holiday company, I would say about 24, decided to go back into education and went to a local college, had a pretty poor experience there and scraped into university and literally uh, did a degree in race equality and urban policy, but got no help whatsoever. And when I was at university, this is where I started to think, surely there must be some sort of provision for dyslexia. Uh, and there wasn't. Um, I think in the first year of university, somebody asked me to stand up and read poetry out loud and I refused and said, you know, I can't, I'm dyslexic. And the guy turned around and said, well, is that some sort of uh, mental problem? And there was a sharp intake of breath from the people in the room. And I went, no, it's not, but I'll, I'll, I'll have a chat with you at the end and, and, and tell you what it is. And he was like, right, okay. And he wasn't being facetious. He was just, you know, it, it, was, it was the wrong thing to say at that time. However, at uh, the end of the session, he said, I've got, I'm sure I've got another one of you somewhere. I've got a, a PhD student. And he said, you should go and see the PhD student. She's getting support. So I went and saw the student who then told me there was a grant available, there was support available. Um, and that really was the start of the charity. Uh, I applied to, to what is commonly known today as the, uh, the DSA, the uh, Disability Student Allowance. And that funded... Uh, an Apple Macintosh computer. And that literally opened up my world to um, academia and education. But throughout the years of being at university, people would come up to me and go, you're that dyslexic guy. I've been told to see you and uh, I believe there's some support or some help available. And that's pretty much how the whole charity started by the fact that there was nothing available in university or college. Uh, I left uh, university and came to the conclusion, surely that there should be you know, something available. And I asked a few people and I started to look around. And then basically that was, that was the formation of the charity, was to say, okay, what, what, what is available? There isn't anything available. And um, I then decided that something needs to be done and I'd need to find, you know, what support, help and resources are, are out there for adults, not so much children. I'd, I'd explored all the, the different organisations that were around in the UK at the time that were supporting children, but no one was really supporting adults properly. And there was no advice and guidance. And this was pre, you know, this is 1994. Um, I did my first disability student allowance application. 
I then found out there was a grant called Access to Work. And that basically was the foundation of saying to people, listen, there is support out there. You've got to be very proactive and go and find it, fill the forms in, get the equipment and help yourself. But there is actually help out there. Wow, there's so much so much to delve into there, so much to unpack. How conscious was it in terms of your thinking that, okay, um, there are other people like myself who struggled, who are struggling, who need support. They're not getting that support. So I'm I'm essentially going to devote my you know all of my time um to to facilitate those things so my question is was it driven by your desire to help people it was very very much that there was um a gap but there was just sort of like a queue of people <laughs> literally I'd, I'd i'd be sat having you know my lunch and there'd be people coming up and saying listen i i believe you know about this and i'd be like yeah that, that you know this is the process um and then luckily, sort of, I was at university, I went back as a mature student, um, and in 1995, they introduced the, the, uh, the Disability Discrimination Act, and that really made people think about disability, uh, more to do with sort of physical disabilities, disabilities that were obvious, than the hidden disabilities. So by the time I'd gone through university and um, I was doing, I did, a, I did a degree, a master's, and then uh, got three quarters of the way through a PhD. At the same time, I had the idea of, do you know what, the, there needs to be some sort of support or help in place for people with dyslexia. And very much the educational providers were looking for people to come along and say, okay, you know, what can you do to make um, my organisation uh, accessible to people with dyslexia. And one of the biggest um, inquiries that I had at the time was the, the, the Learning and Skills Council. The old, be, the old um, techs were very interested in uh, what they could do to improve the experience of young apprentices uh, and students in colleges who had some form of special education needs. Um, and literally, the ignorance around dyslexia, dyspraxia, um, ADD, ADHD, it, no one had a clue. Uh, ignorance was was the, the, the form of defence. So a lot of money was put into, or it was there was a lot of money available to upskill organisations and individuals to support them in college apprenticeship provision, uh, MVQs. And, and that's where we really started. We actually got a contract. Um, and I met a guy who was a charity specialist just socially, and he was like, well, I, I can help you set a charity up. And this was 19, so 96, 97, and then we formally set up in 98. I'd met a lovely uh, woman through a network who was uh, a funding expert, and she said, listen, you know, um, come and, you know, come and start your embryonic organisation in this building, and we'll give you lots of support. And basically, we had, there was no funding, no money, and I had a desk in a corridor next to a toilet, and that's how we started. Um, and it grew from, you know, me as a volunteer for two years to um, 25 staff and, um, you know, to what, what, we, what we do today, the provision that we provide today. And that very much is, is a little bit of luck, a little bit of hard work. And, um, but I would say the main emphasis was the fact there was a change in law that, you know, disability discrimination, you had to by 2001 of looked at your sort of services and provision and the educational providers had to look at what they did, how they did it and what they could do to improve. Well, so there's, there is, as you say, there's an immense amount of luck 
and good fortune that happens. You know, the, the new legislation comes in and then you're the man who is perfectly placed given, you know, uh, your struggles with dyslexia at school and university to step into that breach and say, okay, guys, uh, this, is, this is what we need. I've been, you know, uh, the man on the ground. I've seen the level of support that people need. And uh, this is how I think we can, we can move forward. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's fascinating. I mean, and, and wonderful as well that um, you were as lucky as you were to be the right man in the, at the right time. I think it helps. One of the things that I've always focused on is it's a, it's a personal experience. I remember um, being 14 and the only subject I really liked was uh, PE. So playing football, loved playing football, loved the PE teachers, the two guys that taught me. And in the summer they went, right, we're not playing football, it's going to be athletics. And today we're doing the high jump. And I was like, oh, this is just, you know, boring. It's a boring thing to do. I'd rather play football or, you know, something more interesting. And that whole day, spent the day learning how to do the, do you remember the Fosbury flop where you had to sort of run up, jump and flip over the, the bar? So we spent the afternoon doing that and it was just one of these sort of things where you think, oh, you know, okay, we'll do it. It was, it was, it was a laugh, but it, it, it's, you know, what, what benefit is it to me? And ironically, on the way home, I'd uh, walked with a friend and they were going one direction and I was going the other direction. So I was talking to my friend and he, uh, his bus pulled up. He gets on the bus. I run out in front of the bus and didn't look. And as I got past the bus, the Ford Granada, an old 1980s Ford Granada, um, hit the brakes. And then literally as I looked, I ran and I thought, right, there's going to be quite a heavy impact here. This car's going to hit me. And he was screeching to a halt. And as he screeched to a halt, I literally jumped backwards, flipped my legs up, landed on the bonnet of the car, went up the windscreen, onto the roof. Then as he stopped the car, I rolled off the car onto the floor, cut all my hands, but in, straight away stood up and got on my bus, which was on the other side of the road, put my hands in my pocket and just pretended nothing happened. When I got home, my mum was like, you okay? I was like, yeah, yeah, i just fallen over, cut my hands. And then the next day there was a, there was a uh, the head teacher was like, right, we want to know, one of the um, children from uh, the school apparently was hit by a car on the uh, on the main road outside the school, they're trying to find out who it was. So I, I was too embarrassed to say I was that daft enough to run out in front of a bus and, you know, get hit by a car and then just get on the next bus and leave straight away as everyone was, was petrified. But the thing that that sort of stayed with me over the sort of years, and I always tell this story to groups of people, is that on that day, if I hadn't had learned how to do the Fosbury flop, I'd have most probably broken both my legs. But the whole afternoon of repetitively running, jumping, throwing my legs in the air and landed on the crash mat, literally an hour later on a road, I've run out in front of a bus, flipped my legs up in the air, and that saved me as I hit the, the, the front of the car, went up the windscreen and came off the car. So for me, that made me think, that point in life, I thought, do you know what, maybe there are things that you should learn, there are different things that you should do, maybe you shouldn't always do what you've always done. Um, and that very much stayed with me, right through to the fact that when I went back into... Um, college I stuck with college I tried the best that I could to learn what I could in the way that I knew but I still at sort of 24 didn't know what dyslexia was I knew that that's the reason that I couldn't spell but I couldn't tell you what it was no one ever sat sat me down and said listen Steve this is why you're reading slower this is why you you know you've got poor attention this is why your memory's very poor no one ever sat down and said this is what dyslexia is this is what you can do everyone just told me I needed to concentrate and try harder. 
And at the age of 20, you start to think, well, actually, that's, that isn't the case. So I took it upon myself. I got assessed, reassessed at 24. And that was the starting point where I thought, right, I'm actually going to find out what dyslexia is, what I can do about it, and how it's going to help me um, you know, get my way through university. And luckily, um, that was the starting point to say, okay, I need to learn new skills, I need to learn about the condition and not just go, yes, I am dyslexic. I would say today, we've got a population of dyslexics where 10% of the people had special education, 10% of the people had private education, you know, they get assessed privately, and the other 80% don't have a clue that they're dyslexic. And that very much to me is this, this idea of why we started the charities. It shouldn't be luck that you find out you're dyslexic. It shouldn't be by chance a teacher says, maybe you should look at this. It should be the fact that it's picked up at six, seven, not 67. Or we had a, a gentleman in here uh, two years ago who was 82, who came into the, the centre to learn to read. And oh, wow. When he was asked why he wants to learn to read, he said, basically, I'm sick of listening to my wife read the sports pages at 82. <laughs> we tested him, he's dyslexic. We taught him to read at 82. And he was like, you know, I should have done this sooner. Um, and that to me is, I meet lots and lots of people and I've got, you know, thousands of stories about people's success, but it's by chance or by luck. And I think that to me is where we try and sort of mitigate the fact that it shouldn't be by chance or by luck. It should be the fact that, you know, people are getting the right information, the right resources and the right help. And that in essence is why we started the charity um, and why it sustained the last 23 years of what we do. It's literally becoming that sort of place that you can, you know, come and get a cup of tea, have a conversation in a non-threatening environment. It's not a classroom, it, it, it's an office where you can sit with somebody who's going to explain to you what dyslexia actually is. Because I'll guarantee, I think I met a, a fantastic guy called Glenn Young, um, who said that 1% of the American population have the right paperwork to say they're dyslexic. People don't actually ever find out. They just get a piece of paper to go, this is, this is you. And then, you know, this is what you need to get some extra time and a little bit of support. But they don't actually say, do you know what? This is what dyslexia is. This is how it affects you. This is what, you know, you need to do. These are the sort of things that you can, you can put in place. And that to me is, is you know, where, we wanted to make some sort of effect 23 years ago and where we're still today saying to people, well, this is what dyslexia is, this is how you can address it and this is what you can do. Yeah, I, I mean, the whole point of um, of the charity and it's the, it's the tagline that we have in every single episode is about uh, maximising the potential of everybody in society so that dyslexics can give the best versions of themselves in society. And the sad fact is so many people go without ever knowing they're dyslexic or being tested. It's it's quite often um, girls don't get tested. It's quite often, you know, people from low-income uh, families, uh, you know, people who aren't white, sadly. And it, it, it does, it really feels like there is, there will continually be um, thousands and thousands, if not millions of people who will need the support that uh, charities like the Dyslexia Foundation are offering. And having, having been to the Dyslexia Foundation offices, which are on the Albert Dock in Liverpool, and they are stunning and they are in no way terrifying. Uh, they don't fill you with any form of dread. You know, they're not, as Steve says, a, a classroom situation. It's um, if, if you do come for a screening or you do um, come uh, for reading lessons, it's, it's a really lovely, lovely space. One of the things that, that when we started was to say, okay, 
you mentioned the the, the obviously income uh, is an issue. So having to pay for the services of a screening assessment, a tutor, it, it is a very expensive uh, industry. And we set up originally to, to help those who were most deprived by dyslexia. And that was basically welfare unemployment. I did a PhD looking at the level of dyslexia in um, unemployment over um, 2000 to 2005. And we got the level of 43% of the unemployed were dyslexic. So we, we, we screened and assessed over a thousand unemployed people in the, um, the borough of Sefton, which is part of Merseyside. And that really made me think to say, okay, well, if so many, you know, uh, 18 to 24-year-old people are dyslexic leaving school, where do they actually end up? And since the sort of research we did 20 years ago, you start to find these sort of pots of um, sort of clusters of people where industries or jobs become the sort of dyslexic job. So you look at the sort of, uh, I was talking to somebody the day about hairdressing. We did a, a research project and we assessed and screened 100 hairdressers. And they were all apprenticeships, and 78% of the hairdressing apprenticeships were dyslexic. But then we also screened and assessed the hairdressers, and that was roughly the same dynamic. There was, there was a number of teachers that were teaching hairdressing who were also dyslexic because they go into these industries where, you know, school's not worked for them and it's not helped. Um, but I, I know you can say you could, you could give us thousands of stories, and um, I'd love you to cherry-pick uh, some stories because you always have some really um, beautiful stories about uh, people coming in, getting the support and learning to read. My favourite one is a, is a guy called uh, Ian and he's on our website and we did a, I did a little um, video study in 2000 and I think it was 2008 where we videoed um, six people who were dyslexic and then we revisited them about 10 years later. But one of the guys is Ian and uh, Ian came to us from a conversation over his garden wall with a neighbour who had been in for an assessment. And his, his neighbour said, listen, you know, I've, I've been found out today I'm dyslexic. And they had a conversation and Ian was like, wow, you know, that sounds like me. I've got a poor short-term memory. You know, I'm, uh, uh, my reading's not so great. I'm not so good at spelling. You know, I'm terrible with my organisational skills. And his neighbour said, well, go and see this organisation. It's free. They'll screen you. They'll give you a cup of tea, don't make you feel welcome, it'll, it'll all be good. And Ian came along and we screened him. Um, and it, it we, we have a, an online screening tool that's on our website, which is free. He basically identified as being dyslexic. We then had a fund through, um, I think it was a job centre fund. So we assessed him and um, he was very emotional, very upset and said on the day that the biggest concern he had was that he... Uh, was going to be told that he's not stupid. He thought he'd come, get assessed uh, you know, for dyslexia and not be dyslexic and someone turn around and just say, listen, you're stupid. And the amount of men that I meet who come and are relieved that they're dyslexic because it doesn't mean that they're stupid because people have told them most of their lives that they're stupid um, is amazing. But for Ian, it was his catalyst. He was a um, bin man, a local, local authority bin man, and he, uh, over the years, had lost jobs, had lots of problems due to his... I think he was a bus driver and he got sacked from being a bus driver because he couldn't fill in an accident log because he couldn't... His literacy uh, skills weren't good enough to fill in the, the, the log. So once he found out he was dyslexic, he we got him into a local college. They helped him with his dyslexia. We gave him the support, the advice and guidance, and we got him into uh, Edgehill University in Ormskirk. 
and he did a degree in horticulture and history. And unbeknown to um, us, Ian had a fantastic history of um, growing uh, fuchsias, I think it was. And he was a phenomenal horticulturist. So he did his degree. He opened up his own business. Uh, he opened a flower shop up. And he went on to win a silver at Chelsea at the flower show. So for him, his whole journey came from a, a chance conversation over a wall where he was screened, assessed for free, got himself into university. And he did the hard work at university. He, he, he really got his head down and, and developed as an individual. Um, and he literally surpassed every expectation that, that I had. And he turned around, um, it was only about, it was about six years ago, I had a conversation. He said the biggest thing about finding out he was dyslexic isn't the journey of becoming a, you know, a, a, having his own shop and, you know, selling. He sells flowers online. He does all sorts of, of fantastic things, he said. But it was how his daughter looked at him. And when he was, when, when the, the kids used to come over from school, they'd be like, oh, don't go to dad, dad's thick. You know, go to mum. And his daughter turned around, I think, and when he graduated from university, she was like, wow, if, if, it, if you can go to university and graduate, then I can. I think she was working as a nursery nurse at the time and she went, did a degree and ended up as a nursery manager of a local nursery. So for him, the inspirational thing was the fact that his daughter looked at him and went, do you know what? If dad can do that, I can do that. And I think those, those sort of um, chance stories really sort of motivate myself and the staff here to say, do you know, it's like flicking a light switch on for some people. We had a, a, a guy who was a caretaker at the local college. And he had a conversation with one of the staff here to say that he was struggling in his job. He'd been trying to get a qualification to be a, uh, a plumber and he couldn't pass the qualification. And the member of staff at the time said, uh, we have occasions where people don't turn up for assessments. If this happens, we can give you a call and you can come down and we can see if you're dyslexic. Maybe that's an issue. And this guy literally got a phone call. He was working, dropped what he was doing, came across, got assessed for dyslexia, clearly dyslexic. They explained the situation, that he, you know, the, the issues that he had, what they could do, the extra time he could get in an exam, you know, the concessions he could get. And they looked at strategies and the member of staff worked with him. And about four years later, I saw this gentleman in uh, a supermarket and he came over and said, listen, the lecturer, thank you. He said, you don't actually know me. He said, one of your members of staff uh, gave me a free dyslexia assessment. And he said, I used to be the caretaker at... Uh, at the, the local college. And he said, uh, just to let you know how I got on, he said, I uh, got the assessment. I said, he said, I passed the, the qualification. He said, I'm now a qualified plumber. He said, but I also decided that I'd like to teach the qualification. So in four years, he'd gone from the caretaker to the actual lecturer of uh, heating and engineering and was um, so successful in what he was doing and so happy. It was amazing that, again, a conversation with a, with a, with a member of staff to say, you know, you could be dyslexic to a very sort of down person who's who's working as a caretaker, who's not fulfilling the potential. They're not thriving with, with the skills that they've got to a person that actually then goes and becomes, you know, passes the qualification, does a teaching qualification and becomes the course uh, leader, which is, you know, a phenomenal success. But again, it's, it's that idea of luck, but it shouldn't be luck. And that's where realistically it's people find us, whether it's from, you know, word of mouth to today, you know, when we first started, it was word of mouth. It was people having conversations. It was doing presentations and talks. Whereas 10 years later on, the invention of the internet meant that, you know, Twitter, Facebook, 
all these different social media platforms started to give us a greater sort of presence and more and more people, but also the fact that the information would uh, would also be online and accessible. When we started, uh, my biggest bone of contention was that if you went to the the established organisations, you know, the London-based organisations, they were sending packs of paper out to dyslexic people. And basically they'd send you 20 to 30 um, helpful sheets of what you could do if you were dyslexic. And I used to say, well, if you're dyslexic and you can't read, how do you access the services from the charities at the time? And people used to look at me like, well, I don't sort of see where you're coming from. I said, well, if, if you're really struggling as a dyslexic person and you ask or you ring up an organisation and they send you a pack of lovely, colourful picture information, how does that help you if you can't read? And that's sort of the basis of where we started to say, do you know what? Have a policy nine to five where you can just walk in off the street. You don't need an appointment. You can come and knock on the door and find the information that you need. Obviously, now it's refined. We've got the internet, we've got videos, we've got TikToks, we've got everything you can think of. But in those days, it was literally, you know, is this the best format? Is this an accessible format? But along the, along the sort of journey, there are people that we've gone, do you know what, if you do this, this and this, it's going to change your life. And I think that, to me, is far more rewarding than, than anything else that you can see. If you, if, you, you know, if you intervene in someone's life and just say, listen, Flick that light switch on. You're not stupid. You know, this is why you can't retain information. This is why you can't read. This is why, you know, you can't read out that word. It, it, it's literally just giving information and support and guidance to say, but if you do it X, Y, and Z, then you can move on. And today, things are getting better. Technology is better. Um, the access to information is easier. Uh, and I think that's where with the right support and the right interventions that are put at levels of sort of six to seven and, and even for adults, that you can get rid of that chance happening where, you know, you've got stories of people's success. Because I'm not one for the the whole famous people who are fantastic with dyslexic because it doesn't really relate to the 18-year-old kid on the street who's like, well, you know, am I going to be the next Dyson Virgin or, you know, um, Apple inventor? You're not. It's, you know, everyone has has a gift, everyone has something they're good at, but it's finding those those sort of areas that you can promote and, and, and push to sort of, you know, empower people rather than people find out by luck. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I was always struck when you when you told me some stories like that before um, about how incredible it is and how powerful it is when you, when you put a name to something. So, you know, unfortunately, as you say, people come to the Dyslexia Foundation offices um, often by luck, by chance, and you you completely change the trajectory of their lives by simply going, what you have, it's not that you are stupid, it's not that you are in any way deficient mentally from anybody else, it's just that you have a, a neurodivergence, something which um, it just means you have to develop a, a form of working with it, a, a workaround. And, and from that, they're empowered, this sort of this narrative they have about themselves, which is, I can't do that, that's not something I can do, completely changes to, I can, if I have, uh, you know, access to this computer, or I, you know, I develop this technique for doing it with this with this person. Um, could you delve a bit more into that? So like, what the Dyslexia Foundation offers for people coming in off the street, um, the services that, you, that you'll give to them, be it, you know, helping them to learn to read, um, or giving them materials, I'd love to hear about that. We started originally 
the original sort of emphasis of the organisation in sort of 1998 was to say, okay, look at those that are most disadvantaged and then look at what can be done. And we looked at how you could upskill educational providers. Um, so for the likes of apprenticeships, it was having an organisation that would go, do you know what? If we have people coming in through our door who have failed in education, what can we do to stop them failing within their organisation. So originally, I think there was 180 organisations in Merseyside that we worked with to say, okay, you should be looking at screening um, apprentices when they come in the door, you know, when they do their induction, do it, have people who can actually offer some empathy and understanding to what the, the, the barriers are to that person um, progressing and thriving within the organisation. So we very much started off training uh, trainers and then we looked at um, people walking off the street. If you were dyslexic and you were disadvantaged, you could come in, sit down. Um, a fantastic guy joined me uh, at the very beginning called Terry Rotherham, who he's another guy on the video uh, of the, uh, the people's experiences. He was a dyslexic English teacher and he came on board and he's just retired this, uh, last year. Um, and he spent 21, 22 years uh, assessing unemployed people for free. Uh, that was his vocation, his, his his job in life was literally, he was the guy that was um, screening and assessing unemployed people, disadvantaged people, day in, day out, um, and supporting them into education, employment, or just in life skills. And for us, that was where we, we, we sort of drew the line and said, okay, people can come in, we'll do this, and then we'll look at where we can, we can take them. And that literally was the start of the provision. It was, do a basis of training trainers, screening people for free. And then um, it's taken us 18 years to get the job centre, uh, the Department of Works and Pensions, to acknowledge that you have to screen and assess people with dyslexia who are unemployed. And when I started 23 years ago, that was my main aim. If you go to university, you can get a grant called the Disability Student Allowance. It's a 90 to 100 million pound grant a year that costs the government to support students in higher education universities doing full-time courses. Also, there's a, there's a grant called Access to Work, which you can get via the Job Centre, that if you're in work, the Department for Works and Pensions will fund the support that you need to address your disability. So they will give you a computer, an iPad, software, training, a non-medical helper. There's lots of support out there. Again, it's a 100 and something million pound um, scheme um, but there's nothing for unemployed people. So if you're an adult, you're unemployed and you're struggling, then that's where there needs to be an intervention. Um, and that actually took me 18 years to get to a point where today we work in partnership with the job centres. We have a fantastic relationship with the job centres on Merseyside. And someone that's unemployed can come, uh, see the disability employment advisor and get referred to us and they will come in and they'll work one-to-one -one in an office and we will look at a personal development course. We will screen them for dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. We will assess them for, for, for the same uh, issues. And then we will put a program in place where they'll attend sort of 10 half day sessions looking at dyslexia, what they can do to, to uh, you know, address the dyslexia, what dyslexia is, how it's going to affect them, what you can do in job search, what you can do looking at your employment, educational opportunities and in the last 12 months just to give you an example um we've had people come from uh refuges that we've got from a refuge to a university place we've got people who have been unemployed for 25 years who've took the first step onto 
you know, at the employment ladder. Uh, we're teaching people to read who can't read. And basically, it's it's saying to somebody, listen, you're not thick, you're not stupid, you're not a, a burden, you're not, you know, a, a scrounger, you're an individual that needs a little bit of help, a little bit of support, and then actually you can move on. You can move on to different things. So I very much, as an organisation and individuals that work here, the ethos of what we've got is to sort of say to people, okay, come in, sit down, what can we do? We're not going to change the world, but we're going to help you change the problems that you've got or you perceive to have and, and try and look at a solution. And uh, we have a good success rate. We, you know, people leave and, and they do move forward. And that's why I like the idea of when, when we discussed this podcast about 12 years, 12 years ago, 12, 12 months ago, it was about thriving. It's not the negative thing. I always, I've always sort of gone, you know, you can, you can look back and regret things, but it doesn't help you. You've got to move forward, progress, look for solutions, look for things that can improve the situation that you're in now and look at how you can move forward and feel better about yourself, more positive about yourself and, and, and ultimately, you know, to, to, to reach the potential that you've got. Um, and that's down to each individual of how they do it. But we look at it as a, as a process. We have a project at the moment where we're supporting about three to 400 university students across uh, Merseyside. And we have about 20 tutors that support university students. And they are the easiest dyslexics to help because they want help. They want to progress. They spend an awful lot of money to get an education. Um, and we're funded by uh, the Department for Education to provide that service. But it's it's very rewarding for the, the staff that do that. But the people that we meet who are unemployed are far harder to engage and far harder to help because of the experiences that they've had. And that to me is where we, that's the area that I enjoy. That's the, you know, I've got more staff working with university students uh, than we have working with unemployed people. But I think the biggest change is, is getting those people who, I mean, we do an awful, an awful lot of work with access to work where people are working in a job um, where we support them to find the solutions within the workplace, those um, areas of what we do are very good. But the actual unemployed side of things, where you've got, you know, you've got a large proportion of people who are very disaffected by life. I would say at least fifty percent of the people that come through our door are medicated for depression, who are dyslexic, who are unemployed. Uh, there's a phenomenal suicide rate within the uh, the, the unemployment um, cohorts because of the situation that they're in. Um, and I think now the Department of Works and Pensions, you know, they get a lot of criticism, um, but they are putting put measures in place to support people with dyslexia, to, to support people with uh, neurodiversity. Uh, I'm not a fan of, of the term neurodiversity, but literally um, the sort of hidden disability now is coming to the forefront for those people that are left to sort of uh, flounder um, who are unemployed. And, and that unemployment comes from not engaging in education, um, which is which is a key a key point and a key sort of um, area that we like to address. Absolutely, absolutely. You told me something which was absolutely heartbreaking um, when we were first having those discussions about about whether or not to do this pod, um, and it was the majority of people who are homeless are uh, neurodivergent. I know you're not a fan of that that saying, or, or dyslexic, or have um, something like it. Um, and that, I mean, that that really shocked me. Over the years, um, I've 
had the, the 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 sort of the look to go and look at different areas of, of disadvantage from the perspective of a dyslexic person, but also looking at sort of academic research um, and looking at the, the data of, of, of people who come into those services. So from simple stuff like the, the, you know, the voluntary sector organisations, local charities, we've done work with, you know, from drug and alcohol to streetwalkers, to the homeless, and there's a high proportion of people in uh, the homeless cohort who are there because they've, you know, they've gone into that that sort of zone of, uh, you know, what they used to call like an underclass of people, where they're not actually even in the the unemployment, the the sort of below that scenario. And one of our staff um, used to work. Uh, Alan Shawman is a fantastic guy based in Manchester. He used to work in a homeless uh, shelter. And he, he was dyslexic and his interest was, you know, obviously homelessness and dyslexia and, and he was, and he, he'd ask people, he'd have chats with people and it's not rocket science to work out if someone's dyslexic. It's like, you know, in those areas, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, you know, if, if poor short-term memory, struggling with uh, reading, struggling with spelling, organisational skills, you know, and then... Uh, phonics, which is another bugbear, another hate of mine. But those sort of five areas, if you have a conversation with someone to see how they got at school, you know, did they struggle with the reading? Did they struggle with the short-term memory? Did they get any qualifications? Did they truant? That basically gives you a picture of there's a very strong chance that the, the person's going to be dyslexic. I did a, a research project, looked at a 1,000 unemployed people, and we got from that basically truancy, poor reading, spelling, phonemic awareness and short-term memory. So if you've got those five things from the research that we did 15, 16 years ago, it was basically that that's, that's the indicator of dyslexia. Um, and that realistically is if you start looking at a prison, if you go to any prison in Europe, in the UK, in America, you will find a disproportionate number of adults with dyslexia. I sit on the International Dyslexia Association Global Partner Board, I've been attending their conference for 22 years and I've seen that many different academic papers of people in prisons who have done research in South America, North America, Africa, you know, Singapore, everywhere that dyslexia, you know, is there. It, it's an issue. It creates, you know, criminal activity. It, it creates problems. But if half of the population, prison population in the UK were visually impaired, we would have a system in place in the prisons to address visual impairments. So there'd be braille signs, there'd be people trained to support people with visual impairment, there'd be resources, there'd be access issues, there'd be all sorts going on in the prison system to address that. In the UK, we know that half the population are dyslexic. We also know that half the population have got mental health problems, but we don't have the provision within the prison systems to address that. And I've been into you know, Risley Prison, we had an ex, uh, one of our ex-trustees was the governor of Risley Prison. Um, you know, you've got two, 3,000 people and at least half of them can't read properly. They've got short to memory issue problems and they're dyslexic. But there's no actual support put in place because that cohort of people are written off or deemed too expensive. But that's the cohort of people that you've got to address, that you've got to identify and say, listen, if we can do something here, then we can make a change. And making that change is gonna save, you know, the taxpayer. The same as if you look at the NEAT, not in education, employment and training. That, again, is an area where young people go um, who have got special education needs. The reason I don't like uh, the, the, the neurodiversity tag is because, it, I mean, originally it came from, um, 
think it was a paper done by I'm top of my head. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the the, uh, the woman's name. There was a woman in I think it was Australia who did a book called The Neurodiversity: The Birth of an Idea. Judy Singer. I've just found the book on my desk. That's why. So literally, um, she did a, she did a whole thing about Asperger's and neurodiversity. And I'm not a fan of of terminology. For me, if if you're dyslexic, you're dyslexic. If you're neurodiverse, you're denying the fact that you that, that you've got dyslexia. I asked uh, about twenty students that we support last year, do they know what dyslexia is? And most could cobble together a rough idea of what dyslexia is. I asked the 20 students, what's neurodiversity? Not one person could tell me. So for me, if you don't understand what dyslexia is, why would you then go and look at a term, neurodiversity? And the neurodiversity is a positive spin on Asperger's and autism. For me, it's not a positive spin on dyslexia because ideally I want people to go, I'm dyslexic, I'm proud of that, I know what I'm going to do about it and I'm going to address it. But if I start saying, well, I'm, I'm neurodiverse and I'm dyslexic, what does it actually mean? You know, what, what is that term? And unfortunately, we've got, we've got a real problem with identity within the dyslexic um, community and a very big issue with community because people who are dyslexic go off, find the answer, and then never come back to the community. Or they don't, there's very few that come back and pay it back. You know, it's very rare to find somebody that'll stand up and go, listen, I'm dyslexic and I'm proud. You know, we're doing this podcast and, and to a certain degree, you've got to lay your soul bare due to say, well, I'm dyslexic and I'm okay with it. And, you know, you've done that, which is fantastic. And the people that have come on the podcast that have come on and gone, you know, I'm dyslexic, I've thrived with it. And that's the idea of the podcast is to be like, I've got an identity. I'm happy with that identity. And one of the things I really pushed back with 20 years ago was people calling dyslexia and SPLD a specific learning difficulty. And I'd say, okay, if it's a specific learning difficulty, what is it? And they'd look at you and go, well, it's a specific learning difficulty. I'd go, no, it's dyslexia. And they'd go, no, it's a specific learning difficulty. Well, if you look in the dictionary of dyslexia, it's, it's dis means difficulty, lexia means word. SPLD doesn't mean dyslexia. It's like going to a doctor and a doctor saying, oh, well, you're ill. And you go, okay, I'm ill. So what's up with me? Well, you're just ill. And people have moved away from SPLD, embraced the neurodiversity label which was you know 30 years ago judy singer wrote that um paper for a for a master's degree or something it was just it's a small book and a, and a journalist took it and all of a sudden we've got this whole identity of um i think it does a disservice to people with disabilities it, you know people don't like the idea of dyslexia being a disability but it is if you go to university and take a grant you're taking a grant for a disabled student allowance if you go to Access to Work and you get a grant for your job, Access to Work is a disability grant. I don't walk around thinking I'm disabled 24-7, but to certain, to certain times in my life where I've been debilitated by being dyslexic, I've been escorted off planes for being on the wrong plane at the wrong gate at the wrong time. Um, you know, I've missed flights, I've missed exams. You know, my, my favourite one is that my dad used to leave me outside school and my friend's mum would stand with us until my dad would remember to come and get us from school. And I'd be like, oh, this is, this is terrible. And when I was a teenager, we'd be like, do you remember when you used to leave us outside school, dad? It's terrible. And he'd be like, oh, yeah. And my dad was dyslexic, obviously. And then I used to uh, fast forward, you know, uh, 16 years ago. I had a daughter. I used to forget to pick her up from school. And we could see the school from my house. I'd be sat having a cup of coffee, 
thinking, I'm sure there's something I need to do. I'm sure there's something I've got to do today. And literally, I'd left my daughter in the playground, the same as my dad had left me in the playground. And, you know, that whole idea of dyslexia being hereditary and those sort of things that affect you, it's understanding what dyslexia is. You know, why can't I do maths? Is it because I've got a short-term memory and I can't remember how to do a long multiplication or long division or fractions? Or is it because I've got issues that are, that are you know, with my short-term memory of, of processes? You know, are my organisational skills affected by my short-term memory? Everyone now is moving on to the whole idea of executive function being a, an issue for people with dyslexia. 20 years ago, if I said to someone, listen, dyslexia is not about your ability to read. It's my short-term memory. I'm an adult. This is how it affects me. And the last 20 years, I've spoken to and interviewed and screened maybe 20,000 people. And the big thing that screams out to, to adults is, it's my short-term memory that affects me the worst. That's the biggest problem I have. You know, I can't remember why or what sequence of the alphabet because it's my short-term memory. I can't remember how to do fractions or, you know, try, you know, all these different things that you that you sort of got to remember at school and you're given a certain process of how you remember it, it's your short-term memory that lets you down. And that's then how you develop strategies, which I've, I've listened to you talk about how you, you saw things and colours and, you know, that whole idea of the multi-sensory teaching that goes back to, you know, the various books that were written, I mean, um, I'm trying to think of the guy that did the, um, I think it's in the mind's eye. There's, there's various different, the Davis techniques, all those sort of things that are look visual and making things more sort of right-brained than left-brained. They're the things that are, that are the skills that help people who are dyslexic push forward. But I think the whole idea of terminology, of saying everyone's neurodiverse, it's fantastic, it's great. It's not, for me, cynically, and I've, I've talked about this at national level at different various organisations and, and board meetings, for me, neurodiversity is how other people teach dyslexic people. So for them, it's well, you know, if if I'm neuro, if I if I, if I'm a practitioner of neurodiversity, I can go down a road of helping support people with dyslexia, dyspraxia, dysphasia, dyscalculia, ADD, ADHD. For me, I'm an expert at dyslexia. I am not an expert in dyspraxia. So as an organisation, we support people with dyslexia. If someone comes to me and says, listen, I'm dyspraxic, I'll say, okay, there's this, there is the Dyspraxia Foundation. If someone comes to me and says, listen, I've got um, ADHD, I know a fantastic uh, organisation. There's the um, ADHD Foundation in Liverpool. There's a fantastic adults one called the Ladders Group, and they support people with ADHD. And that's, the, that's what they do. They're very good at doing that. But for me to go, do you know what? Come and see me. I'll be able to help you. I'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. It's unjust to the person because I'm not 100% confident in being able to support a person with, you know, six or seven different comorbid disabilities. My specific skill, this organization's specific skill is enabling somebody with dyslexia. So I don't buy into the neurodiversity. I don't like it as a terminology. I think it's something that is very much led by the people that profit from the world of dyslexia in education technology. If I have it right, it feels like um, you feel there's a great sense of um, empowerment that people get from putting a name to something. I have this. I mean, I, I, I think there is absolutely something to it. Certainly with all of my guests that we've had, not one of them has said that they believe dyslexia to be um, a disadvantage to them. 
um, and and they wear it quite proudly on their on their sleeves. I mean, it, it, even if they're of a certain generation that were told at school that they were stupid, um, now they're very much, um, you know, uh, they'll make it known to people uh, f- quite freely. Um, so yeah, if if I have it right, the point you were making is that. Um, you, you can empower yourself and and great get a great deal of um, strength from saying this is what I have these are the things this is how it exhibits itself and and um, and this is potentially the support I need. Yeah, I think it, it it goes to that sort of if if you can empower someone and they embrace the disability aspect to say okay this is this is how I'm empowered because I know that you know dyslexia is a condition that affects me in, you know, day-to-day life. However, if I put the right strategies in place and the right support and a little bit of understanding, I'll be fine. Uh, I mean, the last podcast that um, I listened to was was The Doctor, and it's fantastic that somebody with dyslexia goes into a profession where it's going to be very, very intense and very hard to get through the qualifications. I've done a lot of support with doctors over the years, where they struggle with uh, the processing of uh, information, the speed of which they do it. I, my, myself as an adult, if I stand in a, I used to stand with my friends in, in a pub and play Who Wants to Be Millionaire, which was a, a quiz machine, and it would read the question. You'd have to read the question, then read the you know A, B, C, or D. And for me, I would be two seconds behind my friends in the pub. So I'd read the question and then press the button. And then I'd be like, it's C, and they've pressed D, and they'd be like, well, why don't you do it quicker? And I'd be like, well, literally, if you give me that sort of second or two, I can catch up, I can do it. And it's it's people understanding that dyslexia's got lots and lots of gifts, but also, if you're unlucky, it can be sort of devastating. We have people coming in here who, who can't get a driving licence, can't get a passport, can't get on welfare, can't stay on welfare. Um, you know, there's, they've had lots of devastating things that have happened to them. But it's, it's getting that person to say, okay, this is what's gone wrong. This is what we can do to address that. And this is how we're going to sort of move forward. Um, and I think that that's one of the key sort of aspects of, of looking at, okay, these are the, the, the sort of the negative aspects of being dyslexic, but then there's the positive. I've watched lots and lots of dyslexia, you know, videos, animations, podcasts, where people just go and go, listen, this is how terrible my life is for 55 minutes. And then the last five minutes go, but... I've had this success, but ideally, what you really want to hear is is the the sort of not the worst case scenario, but the positive aspect of life. To say, okay, I've got dyslexia, but I'm a doctor, I'm a fireman, I'm an ambulance driver, you know, I'm a graphic designer, I'm an artist, um, I'm succeeding with being dyslexic. And I, I, I've been watching the social media as the as the podcasts uh, drop on uh, on the iTunes and. You know, the, the positive feedbacks from people saying this really helps, I'm a teacher, and the different jobs that people do, people often look at it more or too much the worst case scenario and not as the sort of, okay, there's a hell of a lot of people in the UK, there's mostly six, seven million people in the UK with dyslexic, and with the right advice and guidance, you know, their life could be made easier, they could have a greater understanding of what they do, you know, I'm, my father was dyslexic, I'm dyslexic, my daughter's dyslexic. My daughter knows exactly what dyslexia is, how it affects her. It's, for her, something that she can manage. And with the, that's just information. That's just sort of like looking at it from a positive sort of aspect. Say, okay, you know, you can, th- you can, you can 
be dyslexic and you can be whoever you want to be if you put the right work in. And there is no cure. There's no potion, glasses, rulers. There's, I've seen every invention in the last 20 years from lamps to medication to software, the, the, you know, everything and anything. But the only real thing that works is having an understanding of what dyslexia is and then hard work. And there are people up and down the country who are teachers that have trained, who are supporting kids in schools that are doing a fantastic job getting kids to learn strategies and, you know, and thriving and, and, and reaching the full potential. There's no quick fix. There's no easy answer. Uh, there's a lot of technology that does help and there's a lot of technology that's a waste of time. Um, but there are no exercise programs. There are no medication. There's no sort of electrotherapy. There's no dots that you can follow on the screen that will cure you of dyslexia because in 23 years, I've yet to meet a, dys a dyslexic person that's been cured. Um, so it, it's more a case of, you know, it's a little bit of hard work. It's a little bit of working things out yourself. It's working out a strategy, working out a process and you can move forward. I'd love to talk about technology, if you wouldn't mind, Steve. So um, how, how are we utilising technology, the role of technology? Yeah, I mean, technology, from when I first started uh, in uh, university, it was, it was a computer. And on my computer, I had a spell checker sellotape to it. It was a Franklin Wordsmith spell checker. And I kept it for, for many a year. And that helped me. Um, spell words that that uh, the word processor uh, couldn't identify, and that's that was the '90s. Today we're in a in a situation where um, technology now is being integrated into the core elements of a computer. It's not something that you have to buy. Um, what uh, Microsoft have done now is they've integrated dictation software into Word, and they've also got um, a reading. Uh, button where you can read text. So looking at what you can do, I, I very much sort of like to advocate for people to say, listen, you know, before you start going out buying expensive pieces of kit, things like, you know, scanning pens, um, software packages to look at, uh, you know, word processing, there's lots of stuff out there. You can Google and find a lot of free stuff or a lot of stuff that's integrated. I'm a really big fan of Grammarly, which is a, you know, it's a free piece of software that is very, very good addressing the punctuation and grammar errors in a Word document or in an email. I think it costs something ridiculous like 60 quid for the year, or it's free, you can use the free version. Um, there's, a, there's an app on an iPhone um, called VoiceStream, which again turns documents into audio files and like an iTunes library where you can go online and you can download a, an article from, say, The Guardian onto your phone and it'll read um, the article on the phone. Um, and those, you know, that's a five-pound piece of software. So if you're dyslexic, you can look for solutions where actually you don't have to go and get assessed for dyslexia. If you know you're dyslexic, maybe you get screened for dyslexia or you just you got assessed as a child. You can go now and look for technology and say, okay, if I'm working in Word, it will read to me and I can talk to, to it. If I'm looking at reading lots of documents, there's lots of free PDF uh, applications that you can you can download or the voice stream one that I mentioned where you can just literally capture text and have it read to you um, and then there's also an another application from voice stream I mean I've got nothing to do with voice stream I just like the stuff they uh, have a, a, an app for your phone where you can basically photograph um, a piece of paper and it will read it to you 
it would also capture the text for you. So those, those sort of little bits of technology are um, lifesavers for people who, who are dyslexic. I mean, my biggest one is I, I use the camera on my phone as my short-term memory. I'm forever telling myself I'm going to remember something and don't. So all I do now is if it's a web address, I'll take a picture of it. If I'm staying in a hotel, and, and I, you know, I'll take a picture of the hotel. So two hours later when I'm trying to remember what the name of the hotel is, I've got it on my phone. So my, my sort of camera roll is full of things that I've took pictures of that I actually need to remember and I keep. So as an organisation, we, we show people, you know, how they can improve what they're doing by using a mobile phone, a tablet, an iPad, or even a computer, which aren't that expensive, but actually can, can you know, really open up the world of um, text and books. I mean, Audible is a fantastic, I think it's seven pound a month. You can download books, listen to books. I'm not a, I'm not an avid reader, but I, I'm a really big um, audio book listener. And also my, my biggest sort of, uh, access into the sort of uh, the written word is podcasts i love a podcast like this you can listen to someone talk about a subject where you don't have to read i have a very good friend um called ben foss he's a the 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 uh, chief executive of headstrong nation in the us and he wrote a book and in his book he said you don't have to read with your eyes you can read with your ears and i think that's one of the things that technology now enables you to do is that you can manipulate text in any format, you know, if you want to look at a, a menu in a foreign country, you can take a picture of the, the menu, turn it into from it Italian into English and have it read to you. So the whole sort of world of text and stories and books and academia is there for a dyslexic person, you know, at the touch of a finger, because most people have a phone, most people can use a phone or someone can show them. Steve, I can't think of a better note to finish on. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Good stuff. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, with me, Jude Monk McGowan. My guest today was Steve O'Brien, the Chief Executive Officer of the Dyslexia Foundation. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund. And there are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. And if you really enjoy the podcast, please go rate and subscribe and leave us a little review. Thank you.